0: Um, um, for logging in um, hi there from a beautiful sunny day in Perth um, the campus is really busy with our students for those of you who don't know me my name is Fiona Allen and it's my pleasure to welcome you to this UWA Hong Kong alumni network webinar how COVID will change the future of work in Hong Kong really appreciate of um, Ricky and the network in Hong Kong for um, working with the team to come up with this event so thank you very much Ricky and our network and really pleased that there is participants from Hong Kong and also from all across the globe listening to this as well. Before we start, I just want to acknowledge that the University of Western Australia um, acknowledges the custodians and traditional owners of the land on which our campuses are located. At The main campuses, is from where I'm speaking today. The university acknowledges the Wadjuk Noongar people as the traditional owners of the land on which it is situated. The Wadjuk Noongar people remain the spiritual and cultural custodians of their land and continue to practice their their values, beliefs and knowledge. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. As Chief Advancement Officer, I am personally committed to supporting our global alumni community. COVID-19 has had had an enormous impact on um, everyone across the globe and it's great when we have Opportunities like these webinars, where we can bring our community together and to learn from each each other. Today's topic is of particular interest to me, as COVID-19 has forever changed the way not only that we work, but also the future of education. We are really proud to have a network in Hong Kong. It is certainly more, much more like um, a family and um, community, strong community, and it's very pleasing that we have over 1,500 alumni based there. So indeed, a very big family. So thank you once again to Ricky and the panelists, and I'm looking forward to hearing what each of the panelists have to say. Now, I'd like to introduce UK-Hong Kong Alumni Ambassador, Ricky Mu, Managing Director, Robert Walters, Hong Kong. Ricky, over to you and our speakers.
1: Thanks Fiona, and hi everyone. Uh, Welcome to our UWA alumni webinar. And greetings to all UWA alumni grads out there. Um, as Fiona said, today we are talking about the impact of COVID-19 and how this is changing the future of work in Hong Kong. Today, we've uh, got a outstanding panel of leading experts with us today. Uh, so firstly, a quick introduction uh, to the panelists. Um, uh, myself, obviously, I'm the host and moderator today. Um, I'm the managing director of global leading recruitment firm Robert Walters in Hong Kong. Uh, and our company specializes in permanent and contract recruitment um, across 31 countries. Um, I previously was a lawyer uh, in the UK and also in Australia, and myself, I've uh, got a Bachelor of Law and Science degree from UWA. Uh, The next uh, speaker is Jacqueline Tan, who's the COO of Greater China McKinsey & Company. Jackie is currently responsible for managing the performance of McKinsey's Greater China region. Uh, She has been involved in launching new digital business models in China and has previously held a number of leadership positions at McKinsey. Uh, Jackie has started her career at JP Morgan Investment Banking in New York after graduation. Uh, She holds an MBA from MIT Sloan School of Management and a Bachelor of Commerce with honours from UWA. Dr. Andrew Stock, Uh, is the next speaker also, also a Director uh, for Asia at Clin Psych Services and en masse. Andrew has worked in Hong Kong for five years in schools and NGOs, providing child, adolescent and family counselling, working on multidisciplinary teams and implementing social and emotional learning programs. Andrew has a wealth of experience working with children, adults and families who are dealing with bereavement and loss as well as mental health issues. Uh, He has a Bachelor of Science with honours from UWA. Next is Peter Reading, who's a personal friend of mine as well as contact. And he's a senior legal counsel for the Equal Opportunities Commission, EOC. Uh, Peter is an international human rights lawyer who has been working in human rights for over 20 years in Australia, UK, Europe, Commonwealth countries, and most recently in Hong Kong, China. Uh, Peter has been working at the EOC and has been leading a large number of uh, advocacy projects, such as discrimination law review and advocacy relating to equality for the LGBTI community. Uh, Peter has a Bachelor of Arts and Law degree from UWA. And finally, we have Professor George Milne, who is currently the Professor of UWA Faculty of Engineering, Mathematics and Science. Professor Milne is the Chair of Computer Systems and Software at UWA and has an established track record in mathematical modelling of infectious diseases. He has analysed the effectiveness of disease mitigation strategies, including social distancing and vaccination, which have a focus on pandemic and seasonal influenza, dengue virus and COVID-19. His research on COVID-19 social distancing strategies were published in Australia and internationally. And Professor Milne has a PhD from the University of Edinburgh. So thank you and once again, a big warm welcome to all our guests for today. Um, Please feel free to submit your questions uh, during the webinar as there'll be a Q&A session at the end. So let me start with Professor Milne. Uh, I understand you've been invited to join and participate in International Disease Modeling Consortia and speak at international meetings. Your recent research determines that optimal COVID-19 social distancing strategies in terms of their strength and timing of activation. And as you know, social distancing has been such a widely discussed topic globally, affecting all our lives. So what are your thoughts on the long-term impact of this pandemic? To different industries, logistics, and the way we travel. Over to you, Professor.
2: Thanks, uh, Ricky. Um, I'll just give you a quick intro to me. You'll understand that I have a Scottish accent, so uh, your ears have to tune into that, please. Um, I've been at UWA now for almost 20 years. I'm a modeler by training, going back to my days at doing a PhD in Edinburgh and I've been an infectious disease modeler for nearly the last 17, 18 years. Um, we developed a COVID-19 model very early on this year. Uh, we had an existing model for uh, that we used to analyze vaccination strategies for seasonal influenza. Um, we build virtual simulation worlds and we run experiments in them and we seed infectious pe- uh, individuals in and see how Uh, an epidemic or a pandemic develops. So we had a model in place. Uh, I have a colleague at the University of Hong Kong, Ben Cowling, who's in uh, public health. He uh, works with the Chinese CDC. He got some early um, coronavirus transmission data from Wuhan working with the Chinese CDC. I was able to get this data from him in January. We uh, We modified our influenza model to reflect the different virus, the coronavirus, which is now uh, results in COVID-19 disease, and had this up and going and running experiments with it. Um, We put a couple of papers up on the MedArchive website quite early on, one in March, one in May. And these were looking at how to mitigate um, an epidemic and look at both the strength of social distancing measures and the timing of their activation. And since then, a lot has changed. We've seen countries who managed to contain the virus early on, now getting second waves. For example, the UK, that's very noticeable. The US just never got, there, never got on top of the virus at all. And some of you will be aware of a, a Melbourne outbreak that started around June, July. We've done a very... Um, detailed analysis of the Melbourne outbreak for a couple of reasons. One reason is to say, could they have done things better in Victoria, the state of Victoria? And the answer is yes. Um, Could they have done much better? And the answer from our analyses is yes. What should they have done? Well, we've been able to identify what they should have done. We have just submitted that paper yesterday to our journal, Nature Communications, so hopefully that will appear in the not too distant future, we might put it up in one of the uh, preprint servers to make it more publicly available because it does give guidance as to how to manage uh, or how to develop policy to manage uh, a recurrence of cases, a rapid growth in cases. And I'll just tell you very briefly what our main finding is, and this is the first time I've talked publicly about it. The main finding is that in late, Uh, In early to mid June this year, the number of cases in greater Melbourne started to increase. Now this is in a scenario where there was practically no COVID-19 transmission throughout the whole of Australia. So this this was a change. And uh, I won't go into why this happened, but the situation was that about the mid to later part of June, the number of cases were increasing exponentially. That means that they were doubling in a certain period of time, approximately. Looking at the data that's been published by the Commonwealth Department of Health, you could see that the cases were doubling about between seven and 10 days time. So that gives you an exponential rate of growth. The Victorian government didn't really pick up on this. They introduced uh, uh, tightening up social distancing measures in the beginning of July. That didn't work and then they went to what we might call stage four lockdown in the beginning of August. Our results show that if we had used this doubling of cases as a trigger, if they had then jumped straight to stage four lockdown rather than step it up to a, a less strict social distancing, and then four weeks later, having to go to a much stricter one, then the number of um, cases would have been reduced to less than a third. And case numbers are sort of interesting because that gives us an understanding of hospitalization rates, which happen a few weeks after, and mortality rates. So our findings are, are, are significant in an international context in that, they show how to respond to a rapid growth of cases. Um, Victoria was too slow. They, were, they didn't go hard enough. So the basic message I'm giving here is you go hard and go early. Now, why that's advantageous is the economic consequences that can fo- follow uh, an outbreak. Uh, we've not done an economic analysis, but we've got data that can be used for an economic analysis. But what I think they'll show is that um, going hard and going early is preferable to uh, increasing social distancing stepwise in a reactive fashion because it's, you're always too late to have a, huge, to have a significant impact. And uh, we've partnered up with a health economist at the University of Queensland. who will now do an economic analysis. But in terms of the economy, um, our, our, our findings of this new work using Melbourne as a test case, is that going hard and going early, early is preferable, both in terms of reducing deaths, but also in um, arresting the outbreak and allowing you to get back to some sense of normality in terms of your economy.
1: Thanks very much, George. That sounds like a very interesting, obviously, studies and research that you have. Um, uh, just on the panel, has anyone got any que- uh, questions for George before, obviously, we talk about the next topic?
3: Nope. Yeah, so I, I've got a well, a quick question. Quick question, uh, Ricky. Yeah, um, uh, George, uh, well, Professor Mion, uh, it's it's really fascinating to hear about what you're doing in in Melbourne. Um, uh, yeah, a question to, I have, which which is obviously um, it's linked to Hong Kong and and comparing somewhere like Hong Kong to Melbourne. Um, what's interesting is is that um, you know Melbourne's obviously had one of the most um, strict lockdowns um, um, in the world. Uh, and as you said, that was probably too late. Um, but what's interesting in Hong Kong is that we've never had um, full lockdown in the sense of, you know, sort of curfews and all of that sort of thing. But we have had a lot of other measures such as, um, you know, wearing masks, um, tracing, um, compulsory 14 days quarantine for anyone coming into Hong Kong. Um, so it. I'm just wondering what you think about the those other measures as being as important as as the lockdown because as i said we've never actually had that in hong kong but as you probably know the numbers of cases in hong kong is is also i think a, a success story story because there's only about five thousand right now for a population of um
1: 7.5 million thanks if uh professor milton if you
2: yeah i mean because... that's a, that's a good point i think um I think that uh, one of the compounding factors in the Melbourne scenario is that they really didn't have a great uh, uh, test, trace, isolate strategy in place. And that's very true in the UK, for example. They're they're now in real difficulty and they're going to have to react very, very harshly to get it under control. Yet the government's not wanting to do that. yeah, Melbourne, um, Hong Kong has been a success story. Um, my youngest daughter in Seoul, works in Seoul in Korea, and um, th- they've got an interesting system there. They, they contact everyone, uh, in, in, they message everyone about three times a day, advising them of where the local cases are. And they actually go to the point of shutting down individual housing blocks. So that's a sort of situation a bit like Hong Kong, you know, densely packed in greater Seoul. And it's a very refined system. They've got good technology, they're using the technology well, they're uh, messaging people, they're telling you if you've got to go and be t- tested, they're telling you if there's uh, a hotspot of cases close to you. Uh, uh, they may well be doing something like that in Hong Kong. We, the other countries here the US and UK just haven't really got their act together from a technology perspective. So there's a lesson to be learned here, I think generally,
1: Thanks very much, Professor Milne. And I think the other message is that obviously we're quite disciplined in Hong Kong. We do wear masks and uh, you know, we actually, from that perspective. Okay. Let's uh, move on to the next uh, speaker. Um, Jackie, um, question for you. Hong Kong possesses a wide range of competitive advantages that have long established the city as one of the world's most attractive destinations for investing and doing business. However, Hong Kong's privileged position has not gone unchallenged. Amid ongoing uncertainties in the global economy, we've seen a rising, growing competition. What are the biggest challenges businesses, employees are facing in Hong Kong? Over to you, Jackie.
4: Jackie, not an easy question you've given me. Um, You know, I I moved to Hong Kong with my lawyer husband, who happens to be a UWA alum, um, over 15 years ago. And we'd like to think that we've seen quite a lot. But what a crazy, you know, last 12 months it's been... um, Around the world with COVID, but you know, in particular in Hong Kong, with the additional uh, things like the protests, right? Um, triple outbreaks on COVID, yes, of course. Um, the you know the, the the really strict quarantine and border controls intra-region, restricting a lot of travel, and of course you know the latest the U.S. sanctions. Um, and you know what I would say is it really demonstrates the resilience and uh, and the grit of uh, of this city and uh, and the people here. So, to your question around um, competitiveness, Ricky, um, nothing like a bit of competition, right? I say to to keep one on their toes. And, um, you know, there's been quite a lot of press recently around Hong Kong's competitiveness. I think there was a recent article out, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, that was talking about um, the 2020 rankings of. of economies around the world and their competitiveness, and you um, talked about um, you know, Hong, Kong's, Hong Kong's tumble down the list, and I was thinking, wow, okay, so this is going to be a, a big fall from glory. And I continued reading, and what you, you know what it said was, you know, Hong Kong's um, number five, so still pretty respectable. Yes, it did tumble down a couple, right? So it was number two, but still, you know, in the top five. Um, and you know, of course, Singapore continued to be number one, right? Low. Um, uh, lots of stability in the political system and institutions, um, but still pretty respectable for Hong Kong. Um, no doubt the ranking and the decline was in part due to protests and probably a poorer economy, but it'll be interesting to see in this coming year, 2021 rankings, where, where Hong Kong comes out because I think a lot of it will be driven by um, the response to COVID, which, you know, as, as uh, Dr. Milne said, uh, we've done a decent job here. Um, in terms of competitive advantage, you talk about challenges, but I'd actually like to think that Hong Kong's still got quite a lot going for it. Um, competitive advantage is something that I think has been developed over many decades, right? So it's not something you earn overnight, but I also think it's not something that disappears overnight. Um, I guess there's a couple of things that I'd point out as highlights in Hong Kong. One is um, financial centre. I think it will continue to be that. It will be the point of access for a lot of um, international investors wanting to access um, the growth market that is China. Um, You know, case in point would be uh, Alibaba's Ant Financial IPO, 35 billion, largest, um, likely to be the largest in history globally, um, and that's going to be dual listed in Hong Kong. Um, I think the other the other point I'd make around finance is Hong Kong continues to be a strong innovation hub for for finance. Um, So, you know, the latest thing around fintechs and virtual banks, Ricky, I'm sure you'll agree, there's a lot of demand in terms of hiring.
1: Definitely, Um, definitely.
4: uh, Eight virtual banks that are being launched in Hong Kong. So again, you know, another another aspect of Hong Kong that I think uh, plays to its advantage. Um, And then finally, I think if you look ahead, Hong Kong's place as part of the Greater Bay Area um, is a huge opportunity right? So you go from 7 million in population in Hong Kong to overnight 70 million, right? Um, Because it covers Guangzhou, Shenzhen, the nine cities, Macau. Um, The Greater Bay Area also, you know, is home to three of the largest port terminals in the world, right? Um, And in terms of air, in terms of um, airports and air freight, um, you know, again, leading by far the, you know, combined comparison of, New York, San Francisco, Tokyo, I think it's, it, it leads that. So I still think it's got quite a lot going for it. Um, and of course, being next to the second largest economy in the world, right? So in the near term, some challenges, definitely. I think the, um, at least for us at McKinsey, we're finding it quite difficult um, for a lot of our colleagues to travel to do business, right? With the 14-day quarantine um, when you enter China, but then when you also come back. Um, and given the amount of interconnectedness that's been a little bit um, a little bit tough for businesses and um, and for for people
1: thanks very much Jackie uh, I definitely uh, echo those views and obviously I'll go into a bit more about the current market state and and overview uh, when I have uh, sort of uh, my segment as well um, now we've got a polling question for the, all the audience uh, that uh, if you can just log on and and choose um, a yes or no answer. Uh, We've got a direct polling question. Do you think COVID-19 impact will change the way you live and do business in the future? So audience participation, if you can uh, please vote. And what we'll do is we'll collate those votes and let you know the results very shortly. In the meantime, I'll uh, turn over to uh, Dr. Andrew Stock. Um, the question is for you is given that there seems to be more workplace adopting work from home as the new norm, what would the future of managing your mental health look like and how can leaders better manage employees' mental health? Thank you, Andrew.
5: Thanks, Ricky. It's great to be here. Thank you, Professor Milne, for, for sharing some, some cutting edge research and findings. Uh, what a privilege to be able to, to hear about some of those findings and and to be uh, yeah, really well informed about how we can respond at the more uh, public level and, and national level in different parts of the world. Thank you, Jackie, for your uh, responses and, and, and sharing about where things are at um, amongst organizations. Uh, again, a broader in broader sort of settings, what I guess I'm being asked to, to speak to today is more on the individual level on the family level on the team level within our organizations. How are people responding to the challenges that are associated with COVID-19? And we're not just talking about anxiety that's related to health, anxiety that's related to concern about family members. We're also talking about the impact of of restrictions, of lockdowns. Professor Milne very rightly highlighted that having a a swift and, 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 and strong response to when there is an uptick in cases is at the public health level by far the most effective strategy available to us. If we sort of forget about the individual and the family and the team and the organizational level of what that means for our psychological health, for our social and emotional well-being, then we're we're missing a really important part of of how we respond to this, uh, the challenges associated with COVID-19 in a holistic way. So working from home, is something that's been adopted in, in many places across the globe. It was something that we were moving towards slowly but surely anywhere. So it's not like there hasn't been any research done on how to do it well already. However, there's been a tremendous uh, a tremendous growth in, in the interest and the, and the research and the energy poured towards how do we work well from home? How do we establish socially connected virtual teams We know that when it comes to uh, uh, mental health and well-being in the workplace, be that virtual or otherwise, it relies on a number of factors. One of those factors being how connected we feel. And so if we are working from home, we don't have that same advantage of being in the office, having those spontaneous opportunities to connect with others, to check in on each other. So that presents challenges. We also might not feel as though the relationships are as supportive as they used to be. And so if we're working from home, we might be still having, you know, a lot of Zoom meetings and things of that nature. But perhaps that can lean us towards being more business focused and being a little less aware of if someone's struggling or of some of the other issues that are important when it comes to a team and an organization's overall health and well-being. And all the dynamic factors that come into play. So I've been very busy in my work with on providing a, a number of workshops and webinars and the like talking to organizations about this very issue. And we know that there is a, a, a realization and a recognition amongst organizations not only in Hong Kong, but also in Australia and across the globe that we more than ever need to input um, and invest in, in people's mental health. Because some people have gone as far to compare the impact that restrictions and things like stage four lockdowns have on people's mental health to a trauma-like experience. Something that you know, was sort of outside of your control, an oppressive power that took away the things that you loved and had access to, perhaps uh, 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 really caused you some level of harm And so we've had some initial trauma, but now we have these second ways we have we have reactivated trauma like responses and we have the after effects of if you've experienced a level of trauma, where you're more vigilant, you're experiencing more anxiety, you're more on the lookout for what might go wrong next. And what we also know from the international data is that, sadly, the international situation regarding COVID-19 is not getting better it's currently getting exponentially worse. And so this is all having an impact on our mental health. And that's being compounded by the possibility and the potential for feeling socially isolated as we're practicing these important physical distancing measures.
1: Thanks very much, fantastic insights, uh, Dr. Sok. Um, I think from Hong Kong's perspective, as you mentioned, you know, we've obviously had um, you know, uh, political, we've, uh, we've now got obviously uh, uh, COVID-19, but also on top of that, it's economical as well with the uh, you know the global recession. So, and I, I guess Hong Kong is very unique because you know when we talk about mental health, you know people don't live in big old houses. You know we actually have you know, quite dense population. So mm. I think that also compounds uh, and um, you know the, uh, the the mental health issue. Um, Just to let you know the results of the the first poll, do you think COVID-19 will change the way that you live and do business in the future? It is a 95% uh, to yes and 5% no. So as you can see, COVID-19 has had a massive impact on people's lives and obviously uh, their workplace as well. So that's a very interesting result, which I will share right now. Uh, Now, moving on to the next uh, topic uh, and speaker, Peter. Um, We've seen numerous uh, news articles of Asian people being verbally abused and even physically attacked around the world because of the perceptions of the virus uh, as Chinese in origin. I mean, if you YouTube, if you Google any of this, you'll see it. Uh, What impact has the coronavirus had on issues of equality, whether relating to race, disabilities, Gender or socioeconomic status. Over to you, Peter.
3: Yeah, thanks uh very much, Ricky. It's uh it's such a delight to be on this panel with so many um distinguished uh um, panelists, but in, in terms of so many different perspectives on on the issue of um, COVID. Uh, I just realized though as we're going through this um uh, the the polls that perhaps we should have one on how likely is it for WA to succeed secede from the rest of Australia um, because of COVID, Um, because, you know, obviously, that was always an issue in WA. Um, Perhaps that's one we could uh, have at the end. Um, But um, in in terms of uh, more serious issues, um, what I don't like is when you, uh, particularly at the beginning of the virus and, um, you know, earlier in the year, people used to talk about, we're all in this together. And on the surface of things, obviously, we are in the sense that, um, theoretically, anyone and everyone could get the virus, um, given its contagiousness. But in reality, its impact in terms of issues of uh, discrimination and inequality are particularly serious for certain groups in society. Um, And that's obviously an area that um, I work on and that we at the Equal Opportunities Commission uh, have a mandate to promote equality and eliminate discrimination in Hong Kong. Uh, And these issues of inequality and discrimination um, are actually manifest all around the world. Um, And you mentioned some some examples. Um, There are issues of race discrimination and prejudice There are issues of disability discrimination, uh, sex discrimination and inequality, and particularly socioeconomic inequality surrounded by the virus. So um, let me just give you some examples which relate to either globally or Hong Kong, which I think many would uh, resonate with you. Um, The first is obviously um, race. And as you mentioned, there is a... Uh, misconception, uh, obviously, that the, the virus um, is somehow Chinese in the sense that uh, it originated in China. Therefore, um, unfortunately, many Asian people have been targeted around the world with uh, racial abuse, or even worse, with um, racial violence. And I know that's happened in Australia. I know that's happened in the UK, the US and, and many parts of the world. Uh, and it obviously doesn't help when you've got a president of the United States calling it um, Kung Flu. Uh, and that, uh, you know, just is a sign of um, the uh, uh, politics uh, going on with, with the virus, which is most un- unfortunate. Um, but um, there are also particular issues of disability, because if you have the virus, or if people perceive you, that you have the virus, then often Uh, you are stigmatised, you are treated less favourably, and that's happened in Hong Kong in a number of instances. Um, For example, foreign domestic workers uh, who already face many prejudices in Hong Kong um, have been dismissed for having the virus, even though they've been um, uh, hospitalised and um, have been cleared of having the virus, Um, their employers have thought it's appropriate to fire them just because they've had the virus. Uh, And that's likely to obviously manifest with with other people uh, in similar situations. Um, In terms of gender, um, uh, you may not realize that there are are many issues associated with um, the treatment of women which are linked to the virus. Um, Just a couple of examples are um, many people that work in industries who are now highly likely to be made unemployed are women. Um, so if you think of the service industries, if you think of the tourism industry, the, uh, there are a majority of um, people in positions who are being um, fired or made redundant, who are more likely to be um, women. So there's a direct economic impact on women. They're also more likely to be taking more caring responsibilities during the virus. Um, So, for example, in Hong Kong, because many of the schools have been closed for six months, um, many women have had to take on greater responsibilities for their children, including having to be teachers of them, which is obviously um, an enormous burden. Uh, And then perhaps most uh, disturbingly, because more people are working at home, as Andrew said, or at home in the same environment, It also, unfortunately, means that many more women have been subjected to domestic violence. Um, And that's um, been played out in terms of research um, here in Hong Kong and in other parts of the world, which has shown that to be a particular problem associated with the virus. Um, And then just finally, in terms of um, socioeconomic disadvantage and um, people who are in poverty, people who are more likely to be living in... um, Uh, uh, housing where there are less space and so on. This is played out in many parts of the world where they're more likely to catch the virus and more likely to die. And that also um, ties in often, unfortunately, with um, ethnic minorities. So, for example, in the UK, the statistics are that black people are four times more likely to die from the virus than white people. And in the US, it's about three times, Um, and that is linked to socioeconomic inequality, the fact they're more likely to be doing frontline jobs where they're at risk of um, being exposed to the virus, and they're more likely to be living in cramped living conditions. So um, those are not good signs, but what it means is, is that um, governments around the world need to respond to these issues of inequality. So that hopefully in the future, when there is another pandemic, which, um, you know, all the signs are that they're becoming more common. um, That hopefully we'll be in a better position in terms of trying to address some of these serious issues of inequality.
1: Thanks, Peter. Uh, Viewers, if you've got any questions for Peter uh, or any of the uh, other speakers, please do. Um, please do uh, uh, lodge them for, for us. Um, just out of interest, Pete, I mean, you know, obviously you are seeing complaints related to, to COVID or coronavirus. Is there any trends or if, have there been any specific um, cases that have been quite unique um, from your perspective, um, you know, in, in relation to, to the impact of coronavirus from, a, from an equality point of view, anything that you've seen that's uh, quite out of the ordinary?
3: Well I mean um, one of the things i didn 't mention, which is is actually tied in with the whole political situation in hong kong and and I think this is important to mention, which um, you obviously all will be aware of, is the um, the tension between people from Hong Kong and people from mainland china mm-hmm. um, so just just as an example there 's been a number of instances where people from mainland China in Hong Kong are being refused service um, on the basis of them believed to be having the virus. Um, Now, that is clearly not just an issue of the virus, but also the political situation in Hong Kong and the tensions between people from Hong Kong and mainland. Um, So that's a very interesting, but also still disturbing problem because obviously if restaurants are saying, we're not gonna serve mainland Chinese people, um, just because they're mainland Chinese, uh, then that in itself is a form of discrimination, which we at the EOC are trying to address. Um, um, because if it was someone who was black, if it was someone who was white, if it was someone who was any race, you shouldn't be able to refuse, refuse someone service in a, in a restaurant.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And if you have a look on some of the incidences that are happening globally, some um, some Asian people are mistakenly being viewed as if you're Asian, you have the virus. <laughs> so whatever ethnicity. So I think that's definitely uh, uh, something that I see, not just obviously in Hong Kong, but uh, internationally as well. Um, right, we have another polling question uh, that we have, uh, which is, do you think work from home has a more uh, positive uh, positive or negative impact uh, on your productivity and mental health. So um, I would like to go to the viewers um, on this one and uh, for them to have a look at the polling question and give give me their sort of view and then we'll come back with the results. Um, In the meantime, there is a, I will actually be talking more about COVID-19, and has this severely impacted the way in which companies work and the recruitment hiring process. Um, I'll be talking about what are the key hiring trends and how these companies have adapted, and also what type of organisations in Hong Kong are still hiring. So just to let you know, in terms of key hiring trends, um, Uh, and impact of COVID. We've definitely seen in the market that hiring activity has slowed down. Uh, There's been delays in the hiring processes, either roles being put on headcount freeze or canceled. And what we're seeing also is more interview rounds as clients are starting to become much more selective in their hiring requirements. Um, We're also seeing approval processes taking longer, especially if the companies are headquartered overseas, because. You know, obviously, with the differences in time and also with the lockdowns and so forth, this has also heavily impacted uh, decision-making processes. Uh, recruitment is also changing through technology and, in fact, technology is pushing um, you know, the recruitment process to a different level. Uh, for example, for our company, Robert Walters, we've introduced new innovation and in technology, such as digital CVs, um, which is a, where candidates send their CVs in, but they also do a short interview with tailored questions for each of the clients. Um, virtual interviewing has become a new norm now, either through Zoom, MS Teams, WebEx, and also onboarding processes for new starters can now be all done remotely, so you don't have to physically be in the office to onboard new starters. Uh, what we also see in this type of market is cost saving measures for businesses to survive. So it's quite common for reduction in salaries, 10 to 20% or more, uh, reduced working hours, um, employees using up annual uh, accrued annual leave, uh, and also unpaid leave, uh, as well as redundancies. In terms of guess what sectors are most affected and which ones are hiring industry sectors directly impacted hospitality definitely f and tourism and the retail sector so which sectors are still hiring well sectors such as retail but really focused on supermarkets e-commerce companies that focus on cyber security we've seen a huge sharp increase on cybersecurity attacks on companies, you know, fishing, mails, uh, whaling, they, they, they call it on a technical term, healthcare and pharma, uh, insurance asset management, fintech and virtual banks, which Jackie mentioned, and also technology and consulting companies. Utilities and some government branches are also um, potentially active to a certain amount in hiring For specific talent that is still in high demand, it's really revenue generating sales positions such as private banking or relationship managers within banks, strategy and sales in other industries, especially in the TMT sector. And really technology in this market is very highly sought after. So looking at programmers, developers, engineers, AI, cybersecurity, cloud professionals, business analysts, project managers, and data professionals because data is what everyone is looking at to convert it to commercial reality. Um, Candidates have been quite challenging in their their mindset. Um, They're looking for better job security, more stable companies, as well as obviously compensation, career development, uh, and and also work-life balance. Another key trend that we see is the increase in hiring of temporary and contract staff by companies. Uh, to create a Agile Workforce. Um, they, they use this to get around headcount hiring issues and it also companies to manage their costs effectively. And also with contract, it, um, it allows a lot of companies to either extend their contracts or convert these candidates to permanent staff when the market recovers. In terms of forecasts, look, I don't have a crystal ball, but we all know markets are cyclic and Hong Kong is a very resilient market. Um, China is also supporting Hong Kong's growth, especially if you've been reading the newspaper, uh, recent increase in IPO activity in Hong Kong due to the d- potential delisting in the USA. And also, as Jackie mentioned, the greater Bay Area investment. So we will hopefully see a, a, a some recovery in the employment market next year. But as we speak, in coming to Q4, I am seeing some, some positivity and some obviously Opportunities uh, for some uh, you know, for some growth measures. Um, now let's uh, let's have a quick look at the uh, the, the the polling uh, results. Eighty nine percent, so resounding. Eighty nine percent says yes. In terms of yes, do you think working from home has a more positive or negative impact? And only eleven percent say no. Just a quick one. Um, we, Robert Walters, did a a survey on 120 organisations and 140 professionals around working from home and our survey actually showed 76% uh, felt that they increased or equal to productivity um, versus 24 that lowered productivity when working from home. 48% of employees were not allowed to work from home before COVID and 70, 79% expect more flexibility when the pandemic ends. And quite interesting enough, 60% felt that working from home was a positive effect on mental health, increased flexibility, work hours, spending more time with families and working in the comfort of their own home. But the challenges were lack of physical interaction with team members, long work hours and inability to separate work from home. So some interesting, interesting results. Um, We've got some time for, for questions now. So uh, I've got a question here for Jackie from one of our audience. The topic is health and finance business. Two related questions. How incorrect it is it for someone to say COVID-19 is, is a flu? Um, and number two, what is the best practice different for different global locations like Melbourne, Hong Kong, USA, UK, India? Um, we have a lot of unhappy people, obviously, <laughs> uh, due to COVID-19. So I just wanted to find out sort of uh, from your perspective, uh, what your thoughts are on that.
4: Okay. I'll give it a go. Um, so first of all, I'm I'm no medical doctor or infectious diseases expert. So maybe Professor Mion, you might be able to answer that question about whether it's a flu or not. But at least from sort of practical observations, because, of course, every every organization today is just keeping a close eye on cases and case management, um, we've seen at least um, you know, a range of, of, of um, levels or severity of sickness from people who you know, had a one day fever to others that have you know, been been sick for quite a while and um, having the recovery um, be, you know, be a little bit longer. Um, from, from our firm's perspective, it, it is about giving people time to recover of course and, and, and taking the leave that they need. Um, To do so, because everybody seems to have it slightly differently. Um, You know, the second question, I think, what I'm hearing is just, you know, how do you balance lives and livelihoods, right? Um, So, you know, um, and different different countries um, have had different levels of severity. Um, McKinsey actually published an article um, not so long ago on this topic, right? Um, No one wants to have to make a choice right, between saving lives versus, you know, livelihoods at large of, of, of economies and getting them back up. I think, um, Professor Milne, you, you talked about it earlier. Um, you know, our the firm view, at least, um, that in this publication was very much around time boxing, how, you know, time boxing the impact of the virus. And so going at it early and fast um, seems to have been um, what has worked at least in this part of the region, what we've seen in Hong Kong, and and very much so in mainland China. So, you know, I've been at the sort of centre of the COVID response team for McKinsey Greater China. And um, I don't know if you'll recall, but there was a there was a outbreak in Beijing in early June, and um, literally within sort of six to eighteen, like six to twelve hours, we had lockdowns in certain areas. Um, QR codes. Everybody walks around with a QR code on their mobile app, and you know. Sometimes it's green and other times you know, it's, it, it's red. We had a colleague who left Beijing, green, and he arrived into Shanghai and it happened to be red because they had extended the lockdown areas that they felt were sort of at high risk in Beijing. And he happened to pass a road in a taxi on the way to the airport, right? This was sort of how strict and draconian they were. But very quickly, within a matter of weeks, Beijing is up and running again. And for the most part, I think, you know, mainland China has been operating business as usual. Um, you know, since early May. Yeah.
1: Thanks very much, Jackie. Um, I've got a question for Professor Milne. Uh, did your recommendations assist the WA Premier take, take regarding its hard stance for COVID? And what do you your models, um, sorry, what do your models uh, show regarding number and strength of successive waves? Professor? You're on mute,
2: Professor. Um, No, they didn't uh, influence the state border shutting. Initially, our work uh, for WA was on um, estimating uh, an unfettered outbreak and how that would impact on ICU beds and ventilator demand. That was at the very early stages. Um, The shutting the borders was a precautionary measure. It's nothing to do with modeling. Um, Jackie made a very good point there about how China has clamped down rapidly and that that aligns with the comments I made earlier where some countries just have got their act together very quickly and some have not and using technology well and the hard and early really does seem to be the key message. Now there's a second part to that question um Ricky which was um, yeah, we're we're going to have to learn to live with this. Was the question about successive waves of cases, growth in cases? We're going to have to learn with learn to live with COVID nineteen occurring, and um, we need to look at mechanisms that can stamp out hotspots, quick outbreaks, and get on top of them. Um, and I'm, you know, it's interesting that. Our work agrees with the McKinsey work, for example, um, in terms of short, sharp shock. If you try and say that quickly, it's tricky, but uh, it, it is the most effective, and I think it does give uh, an economy a chance to rebound. But we have to be prepared to tune this. We have to be pre- prepared to jump in and shut parts down, and to be and to geographically target it. Maybe not do the whole of a country or whole of a region, but hit the hotspots. So I think, yeah, there's, and it's subtle and sophisticated, you know, to be able to do this well. Thank
1: you very much, Professor Milne. Please continue to submit questions. We get, we're getting quite a lot now. Um, One for you, Peter. We just want to obviously uh, have a diverse uh, range of questions. Um, What could be an effective approach changing the uh, behaviour of discrimination against mainlanders amid the pandemic and with the complications of the political climate in Hong Kong? Peter,
3: Yeah, it's a very good question. Um, Given the political climate right now, um, the the attitudes between people who are locals and people who are mainlanders, um, the tensions have risen a lot over the last um, couple of years. I mean, I I think the most important thing is what we would encourage at the EOC is that um, irrespective of what your political views are, of the current developments, that individuals should be treated with dignity and respect, uh, which we would all hopefully agree with, and that um, you shouldn't uh, uh, discriminate against people just because they're from a certain place in the world. Um, And that applies obviously to, to any race, but it also applies to people who are from a different region within the same country. Um, And that's what we, the EUC, have been trying to encourage with the the, the media work we've been doing on these issues. Um, We've also been looking at the law and whether there needs to be amendments to actually better um, deal with these sorts of issues, which is actually about regional discrimination within one country, which is actually something that you don't normally have to Deal with to this extent, but certainly is a is a major problem in Hong Kong. Um, but uh, I mean, on a, on a very basic level, I think obviously um, the way I try and see it is um, if you see someone who's a, a from the mainland, um, you should treat them in the same way as everyone else, um, irrespective of what you may think about the the politics. And um, that's what I would encourage in terms of employers, in terms of service providers. Um, and everyone else in that situation.
1: Great, fantastic. Look, uh, we have time for one last question. Um, Just having a quick look at uh, the questions here. Um, Maybe one uh, for Andrew, Uh, let's have a quick look. Sorry. So I'll just move on to one for Jackie, and I'll, I'll go back to you, Andrew. Uh, Jackie, I've got one for you. Um, Jacqueline, you mentioned new and unique challenges from the current travel restrictions. As a leading global firm, what new ways of working um, McKinsey and Co. are McKinsey & Co implementing to mitigate? And are these likely to, uh, to be permanent shifts in the way of working or revert back to BAU post-COVID-19?
4: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, so, you know, in consulting, as many of you know, we work in teams, we, we gather around a whiteboard, and we problem solve, and we get to solutions together, right? So in this sort of initial phase, when we all went to remote, um, technology, of course, was instrumental for us. Um, and, you know, we saw adoption rates for Zoom go from 15% to, you know, 85% within the first week that we went remote. And that's really been um, such a huge um, asset solution for us, along with you know the online whiteboarding tools and and so forth. Um, but what I can say is that muscle merit memory is incredibly strong, um, and so this drive to get back to normalcy, to go back to normal, is you know it, it's it's almost immediate, right? Like everybody's like, when can we get back on the road again? When are we going to travel five days a week? And you know back to that sort of that treadmill. Um, And so we've actually been having quite a number of sort of discussions and and, and rethinks about what does a new normal look like, especially in the profession of consulting where five days a week travel has been the norm, right? Does it have to be that way? Um, But that, you know, that requires a lot of discipline um, and um, really having quite open conversations and ongoing conversations about how do we make sure that we don't bounce right back and muscle memory, you know, changes.
1: Thanks very much, Jackie. Look, uh, it's, uh, we've had a lot of questions. I know uh, there's quite a fair few, so please um, feel free to continue to send us questions, but unfortunately today, that's all we've got time for. Well, your questions will be answered separately um, if you wanna send them through, not a problem whatsoever. So I just wanna quickly wrap up uh, first of all, I just want to thank all the guest speakers uh, today for their insights in all their different fields of fields of specialisation. I also want to thank Fiona Allen and also Josh Van Kampen, as well as the UWA Development and Alumni team, and also all of you UWA alumni out there for participating and joining in. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to seeing you at all our new uh, our future events, and please make sure you check our website. So once again, thank you everyone. Have a great day and week and make sure you stay safe. Thank you.